I am extremely hopeful and uh, very optimistic that the Biden administration will restore confidence in science and economics and that these will be taken as serious analytical frameworks and not as tools to be bent at will to justify the political preferences of the moment. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our Environmental Economics Program and the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. On January 20th, Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th President of the United States, along with Kamala Harris as Vice President. Changes from one presidential administration to another are, of course, always significant, but sometimes the anticipated changes are not dramatic, such as when the same political party retains the White House, although I think the last time that happened was the transition in 1988 from Ronald Reagan to George H.W. Bush. Uh, But I, for one, do not recall a transition that has represented such dramatic changes in both the style and substance as the transition from President Trump to President-elect Biden. One of the areas, among many others, where this will be the case is the realm of environmental energy and natural resource policy. And today, we are very fortunate to have with us someone who is exceptionally well qualified to talk about this transition and what we can expect going forward. And that's my longtime colleague, co-author, and friend, Richard Rivez, the Lawrence King Professor of Law at New York University, where he was previously dean and was the co-founder of the well-known Institute for Policy Integrity. Ricky, welcome to Environmental Insights. Thank you, Rob. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I'm really interested to hear your impressions, Ricky, about environmental policy, both what we've experienced during the Trump years, and I know you've been watching that really carefully, I follow your writings, and what we can expect during the Biden years. But we, before we talk about that, let's go back, because I think our listeners will be interested, as they always are, to hear where you've been, where you've come from, and how you got to be where you are. So let's start with, where did you grow up? I grew up in Argentina and came to the U.S. in the mid-70s when I was 17 uh, to go to college. I went to Princeton uh, with the intention of of going back to Argentina. Now, Argentina at the time was in the middle of the so-called Dirty War. Uh, Mm -hmm. 10 and 30,000 people were killed through government-sponsored violence in a country with a tenth the population of the United States. And for various reasons, I ended up not going back to Argentina after college and staying in the U.S., first going to graduate school in environmental engineering at MIT, and then going to law school. So you actually studied as an undergraduate and then in graduate school, Princeton and MIT respectively, you were studying engineering. I was, uh, but some... Where along the way, probably um, my junior year in college, I became more interested in the public policy uh, side of science and technology problems Mm -hmm. and in the technical side. Uh, I sort of remained interested in both, so I um, applied both to graduate school and engineering and law school. I had to stay in school uh, continuously because I was otherwise subject to the draft in Argentina during the Dirty War, and I ended up going to MIT and deferring law school. And while I was at MIT, I came under 
significant uh, pressure from my advisor to stay and get a PhD, which I actually did consider briefly, mm -hmm. but then decided to go ahead with the original plan because I remained convinced that um, the public policy side was of more interest to me. And I had decided that for better or worse in the U.S., uh, the profession that has the greatest impact on public policy in general uh, tends to be uh, lawyers. Um, with the exception of economists like you, Rob. But oh, thank you, Ricky. <laughs> for the most, on average, uh, I had decided right. at the time that it tended to be lawyers. Right. And so I assume you have no regrets about having gone on to Yale Law School then for your degree. I have no, no regrets at all. Um, right. And then what was your first job out of school? Well, I was a law clerk for two years. Uh, I, was, I worked for uh, the chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which is the federal appellate court in New York. And then I was a law clerk for one year for Justice Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court of the United States. And those were all fabulous experiences. And after that, I joined the NYU faculty in 1985. I was only 27. I was, you know, for the today's standards, like incredibly young. Um, and I've now been on the NYU Law School faculty for 35 years. Now, you said it was a great experience being at the Supreme Court. Is it fair to say that one of the reasons is that's where you met your wife, Vicki Bean? That is definitely one of the reasons. Um, and from a personal perspective, it's the most important reason. Yes. But in addition to being a great dating place, it was also a fabulous <laughs> <laughs> job. And in addition to uh, putting me in... Um, in the same building as, as Vicky, uh, we started jogging together every afternoon around 5 o'clock. We worked incredibly hard, so 5 o'clock was the uh -huh. middle of our work day. Wow. Um, uh, I was also um, exposed on a daily basis to Justice Marshall, who is a kind of true figure of American history. You know, it's, right. it's very seldom does one spend a significant amount of time with a historical figure, and he was right. a historical figure, and working for him was uh, an unbelievable privilege. And is it right that while you were clerking for Thurgood Marshall, that Vicky was clerking for Justice Harry Blackman? That is right. So both of you had remarkable experiences. We did. There, we were very lucky. Okay, well, let's, um, let's turn to the situation in which we find ourselves now, which is this period of presidential transition. Um, I think it's fair to say that you've been very critical of a number of the Trump administration's moves, uh, particularly in the regulatory domain. I, I'm curious, is there anything that you could say positive? You don't have to, but I'm curious, is there anything you could say positive about this administration's actions in the environmental realm? Um, it's very hard to find something positive to say. I mean, I, I, if I rack my brain, I probably would <laughs> think of something that was inconsequential in where, right. where they didn't do the wrong thing. But on virtually any uh, significant environmental issue, um, the Trump administration was on the wrong side. It was on the wrong side of the legal issues. It was on the wrong side of the economic issues. It was on the wrong side of the scientific issues. And it was really on the wrong side of history. That, then with that, let me go to the opposite extreme. There is a long list of bad decisions and bad initiatives I'm sure you could name. But what's the single worst thing in your mind that this administration has done in the environmental realm? And maybe perhaps one of the ways you might assess that would be that even with an effective Biden administration, the effects will be long lasting. Um, you know, it's actually hard to think of one thing, So, uh, <laughs> but you probably don't want... Um, well, give me a few. Uh, a I'll give you a couple. I'll give you a couple. 
Um, so one, on the climate change front, um, the administration was relentless in its effort to undo uh, the Obama administration's deregulatory initiatives mm -hmm. um, um, on cars, on you know the greenhouse gas vehicle standards for cars promulgated by EPA and it, their companion, the uh, Department of Transportation CAFE standards. Um, yeah. Uh, on stationary sources in uh, their repeal and then uh, replacement with a toothless uh, um, uh, regulation of uh, the Obama administration's efforts to uh, regulate the greenhouse gas emissions of existing power plants um, um, and the repeal of the clean power plan. So those are the two big um, uh, contributors to greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, cars and power plants, and on both, they uh, turned the dial back very significantly. They also repealed the Obama administration's regulation of methane emissions of oil and right. gas installations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not just that they moved the dial back so forcefully, is that at a time when our recognition of the gravity of the problem is um, heightened, and where each passing year is a potential significant lost opportunity, they did nothing to move the ball forward. So it's both the, the, the very significant rollbacks and the four totally wasted years at a time when, when time is passing in ways that are likely to have right. very negative effects. So, um, so I would put climate change, their actions of climate change as one of the um, really bad um, outcomes. The other is the disrespect for science and economics. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, this will be harder for the Biden administration to deal with because these are um, regulations and, and, and administrative measures that have across the board effect. They apply to everything, not just to uh, greenhouse gas. Um, um, emissions. So, for example, um, the administration has proposed what it calls a strengthening regulatory science regulation, uh, which in essence would make it very difficult for EPA to rely on epidemiological studies because the underlying data is not made uh, public on public websites. And under the standards that the Trump administration would like to push, uh, it would become impossible to do epidemiological studies. No one's going to agree to be the subject of a study um, in where the he their health data for their whole life is made public on a public website. It would just be you know, an enormous disincentive to participating in such studies. And also the existing studies didn't do that for very good and understandable reasons. And arguably, um, the Trump measure could... Um, uh, get rid of those studies as as things that the agency can rely on for future regulatory initiatives. Mm -hmm. It might also call into question existing regulations. That rule hasn't yet been finalized, but Andrew Wheeler, the EPA administrator, has indicated that he wants to finalize it before the end of the administration. And one of the things, uh, one of the areas in which the Trump administration has proved to be very reliable is when they promise to do really bad things before the end of the administration, they seem to keep those promises and they've been keeping them in other areas. Right. So I expect we will see this rule come out in the next three weeks. Uh, on a rule that actually just did come out earlier this month, 
the Trump administration has promulgated a new rule for doing cost-benefit analyses of clean air regulations right. that is designed to call into question the use of co-benefits, which the Trump administration has done uh, with respect to other mm-hmm. regulations. And the cynicism of how the Trump administration has handled this issue is truly extraordinary. The Trump administration has taken the position that the indirect costs of regulation must be considered and has kind of drawn a very large circle around indirect costs that should be considered, but has argued in some proceedings that the indirect benefits of regulation should be ignored. It did that in uh, removing the finding that the regulation of mercury and other air toxics is appropriate and necessary. So it's basically saying that the indirect consequence of regulation must be taken into account if they are negative and should be ignored if they are positive. Um, The standard for review of agency action is the arbitrary and capricious standard of the Mm -hmm. Administrative Procedure Act, and it's hard to imagine anything more arbitrary and capricious than uh, taking indirect consequences into account if they're negative and um, ignoring that they're positive. And even there, the Trump administration in some cases has embraced co-benefits where doing so allowed it to justify deregulatory actions. Mm -hmm. It did that for the car standards because it claimed that there were some safety benefits to the car standards. And those are indirect. Uh, They're co-benefits because EPA does not have any jurisdiction at all over the safety of cars. Its jurisdiction extends to um, reducing the emissions of cars. And while the Department of Transportation does have jurisdiction over car safety, it doesn't under the statutory provision that has uh, that produces the CAFE standards. That's purely an energy conservation provision. So safety benefits, if any, are indirect. Mm-hmm. So when you put that together, we're being told that the Trump administration uh, is prepared to embrace co-benefits if it leads to deregulation, but it's prepared to ignore them if that makes deregulation easier to justify. So the contradictions are astonishing. But just to emphasize for our listeners quantitatively how important is what you're saying, is that if we think back to what you mentioned before, the clean power plan under the Obama administration, the regulatory impact analysis for the clean power plan from the Obama administration, fully 94%, 94% of the estimated benefits for the year 2030, which is the mean year in the analysis, uh, were due to correlated pollutants, in particular PM 2.5, not to climate change risk reductions. That was for the domestic benefits, 94%. So it's not just in China. People may not realize this. It's not just in China. It's in many parts of the world, including the United States, where the co-benefits are a very important part of the justification of a sensible climate change policy. Definitely. You know, one thing that occurred to me um, that there is sort of an irony when I ask you for something positive that the Trump administration has done. I, I can't say it's something they've done, but it's something positive that's happened uh, during the period of the Trump administration. Uh, and that is that uh, the under a statute that got rolled into the COVID relief plan into that huge piece of legislation is essentially implementation domestically of the Kigali amendments to reduce hydrofluorocarbons, greenhouse gas, under the Montreal Protocol by 85% over a remarkably short period of time. Yes, I mean, that is a positive, although I will give the credit to the U.S. Congress. Yeah, right. And also, for that matter, 
private industry was 100% behind it since the U.S. private industry is in a good position in terms of the substitute products. Um, so let, let's get to what is the heart of the matter, which is uh, thinking forward of what's coming as opposed to what we've been through. And maybe also we can get a little happier as a result. Uh, things are going to change with the new administration. What do you expect are going to be the major impacts of the Biden-Harris uh, administration, given the Congress and the uncertainty over who wins the election today, the senatorial elections in Georgia? What would you expect over the next two to four years to be forthcoming in terms of environmental policy? Yes. Well, let's talk about the regulatory side first. Okay. Um, and that's where the bulk of the action has been in recent decades. There's been very little environmental legislation. Um, during the Obama administration, the Waxman-Markey bill ended up failing, and the advances on greenhouse on the greenhouse gas front were done through EPA regulatory authorities under the Clean Air Act. And regardless of what happens in Congress, that must and will continue. Mm -hmm. And um, and I would say that uh, two of the the positive things that I would expect will happen are direct reactions to the two main negative. Um, categories I attributed to the Trump administration. Uh, so one is that I am extremely hopeful and uh, very optimistic that the Biden administration will restore confidence in science and economics and mm -hmm. that these will be taken as serious analytical frameworks and not as tools to be bent at will to justify the political preferences of the moment. Um, and, and that is extremely important because I don't think our country could take another four years of the bending of truth without it having uh, very serious long-term repercussions. Mm -hmm. um, so we're very lucky that the November election uh, brought that possibility to an end. Um, and the second um, positive um, set of actions that I see are on the climate change front. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the president-elect and vice president-elect have both signaled uh, that the reduction of greenhouse gases is a very important priority and have extremely ambitious goals. So they will have to both undo all of the negative actions of the Trump administration, but also pivot quickly uh, to undertake measures that are significantly more um, protective than those taken by the Obama administration. Uh, the goal here is mm -hmm. not to go back to the Obama administration status quo because that mm -hmm. would not lead to meeting uh, the very ambitious goals set um, in the campaign. Uh, it will be to do significantly more than that. And so uh, I expect we'll see uh, continued significant ratcheting down of automobile emissions, um, um, including um, much greater penetration of zero emitting vehicles. Uh, and those will have to go beyond 2025, uh, which was the um, the last year covered by the Obama regulations. Uh, and we will see very significant work, I assume and hope on the stationary source side. Um, you know, 
even in the Obama administration, when we ended up with new um, w with regulations for new uh, oil and gas facilities, mm -hmm. we didn't have regulations for existing facilities, which is where a lot of the emissions are. Uh, the electric sector will have to be looked at, and then other industrial sectors that have not yet been um, been gotten attention, like refineries, cement plants, uh, will need to get uh, significant attention. So I see a lot happening on the regulatory side, regardless of the outcome of uh, today's Senate races in Georgia. Now, the races could make a significant difference. Can, um, I, can I ask you first about the regulatory side, though, uh, for a second, Ricky? Yes. Um, so, something that I've heard, but I want you to correct me because I'm not a lawyer or a legal scholar, um, is that the regulatory approach, which, as you've said, in the environmental realm has become the norm over recent years, um, that is going to be more difficult during the Biden administration than it was, for example, during the Obama administration for two reasons, one being the 220 federal judges appointed by Trump, but the other, the more important perhaps, the 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court and a conservative majority that at least in some cases seems to be very tied toward the literal meaning of statutes, less flexibility to interpret you know, a statute in innovative ways, such as the Clean Air Act, local air pollution title, allowing one to address CO2, a, a global pollutant. In fact, someone said to me that they thought the Chevron doctrine, which gives, I guess, deference to agencies' interpretations, could even be overturned. Is that too pessimistic an assessment, what I just laid out? It's... Um it's on the pessimistic side, but it might be right, actually. Uh, I think there are more challenges um, on the regulatory side than there were in the Obama administration, as you indicated. But I think that if the Biden administration does its work right, that is, if it relies on science and economics and careful statutory interpretation, it will be able to get most of its uh, regulations uh, through the judicial gauntlet. Okay. Um, it doesn't mean that some rule won't be struck down. I mean, that always happens. I mean, and, and, and there is an instructive statistic here. Um, before the Trump administration, um, presidential administrations generally won about 70% of the cases in which their regulations were challenged in court. They lost 30%, but they, hmm. they won 70%. That was, yeah. uh, that was a historic record. Uh, the Trump administration only won 17% of the cases hmm. in which its regulations were challenged in court, and mostly because its work on the statute interpretation area, on the economics, on the science, on the justifications was so pathetically terrible. Mm -hmm. And... While they did slightly better with Republican-appointed judges, they lost the bulk of the cases that went to Republican-appointed judges. Um, in fact, I mean, perhaps the most poignant example is an effort by the Trump administration to uh, roll back penalties for violations of the CAFE standards, um, sort of dollars per tenth of a mile per gallon penalties. Uh, they try to cut them by a factor of three, which was going to create uh, significant disincentives to actually meeting the standards, uh, and was going to essentially be a kind of rollback of the standards of about a third of what the actual formal rollback in the in the rollback rule took place. So it was, this was not an insignificant um, effect. 
That regulation uh, was challenged in the Second Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals in New York, and went to a panel of three Trump-appointed judges, not just three Republican judges, mm-hmm. but three Trump-appointed judges. There was a very like, low probability of happening because these panels are set up set at random. And there was concern uh, among people who thought that this was that the Trump administration's uh, rollback of these penalties was really bad public policy and illegal, which it was. The Trump administration lost 3-0 in that panel. Wow. Um, so I think uh, that while on the margin, some cases will come out differently, uh, judges on the whole uh, understand their role. And, um, and the fact that the Trump administration lost most of the, the cases before re- that went to Republican appointed judges and lost this one case that I mentioned suggests to me that if the Biden administration does its work right, which it should, it will prevail in the majority of the cases and will be back to kind of a you know, baseline of a 70% win rate or something of that sort. Well, that's comforting. Um, So with that, let me take you back to where you were about to go before I interrupted you. And I think you were going to comment on uh, the outlook for legislative action and something about what's happening today in Georgia. Yes. So the outlook for legislative action depends on one factor that goes beyond which party effectively controls the Senate. And that is whether... um, the party that controls the Senate is able and willing to get rid of the filibuster for legislation. Uh Um, With the filibuster in place, I think it's unrealistic that major economy-wide greenhouse gas regulation will take place. I mean, the filibuster is what killed Waxman-Markey at a time when Democrats had actually close to 60 votes in the Senate, uh, they still could not overcome the filibuster. And with a very thin majority, um, it's just not possible uh, to come up with enough Republican votes. I mean, I know that people out there say that there are these silent Republican senators who are waiting for the right moment to come out in favor of economy-wide greenhouse gas legislation. But They've been waiting the silence for a very long time, and I don't see mm-hmm. what's different now. I could imagine there being legislation on infrastructure spending with clean mm-hmm. energy components, um, right. um, transmission lines bringing uh, renewables to where the electricity needs to be used, um, R&D for storage, um, mm-hmm. charging stations for electric vehicles. That I could see because basically both parties are committed to some level of infrastructure spending, and I think that the Biden administration and will be able to push that in um, in clean directions. And if Democrats have an effective control of the Senate, that'll help as well. But in terms of like an economy-wide tax and dividend approach or cap and mm-hmm. trade approach, um, one would have to get rid of the filibuster for this to be viable. And we learned that during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. One concern is that even getting 50 Democratic senators and effective control because of the tie-breaking uh, role mm-hmm. that the vice president would then play might not be enough to get rid of the filibuster because it's not clear that every one of the Democratic senators would be on board with doing that. And I believe that Senator Manchin from West Virginia indicated that he would not be willing to do that. So... Um, So legislation could maybe happen in 2022 if Democrats picked more um, Mm -hmm. Senate seats. They also have to retain the House for legislation to be 
possible. Uh, but I actually don't think that the next two years are going to be a time when there is significant uh, greenhouse gas legislation in the U.S. Congress outside of the infrastructure spending realm. Yeah, actually, what, what, you know, what I worry about, and I don't have any inside information to warrant this worry, but what I worry about is that the, the new left, um, the progressives in the House of Representatives, will do the climate version of what Republican majority did in the House of Representatives during Obama years with regards to passing the repeal of Obamacare something like 135 times, knowing it wasn't going to go anywhere in the Democratic Senate. And that now the Democratic House would pass wonderful policies, $2 trillion over four years, all electricity is carbon free within 15 years. In other words, you know, the Biden campaign pledges, knowing that they're not going to go anywhere in the Senate. But maybe again, I'm just being uh, cynical. I mean, it could happen. I mean, history would suggest that some of this will happen because yeah. uh, there's always an effort. Um, look, I, I think it's more likely to happen if Republicans end up controlling the Senate after today's election. I mean, I think uh -huh. that the Democrats in the House would probably be less likely to want to embarrass a democratically uh, controlled That's... Senate than a Republican-controlled Senate. But, um, but some level of blaming yeah. the other chamber always takes place, even when the so, same party controls both. Let me ask you about that then, since you, you mentioned about uh, the votes in Georgia today and the possibility of the Democrats having control. As you said, as you pointed out, as long as uh, the supermajority is required for voting in the Senate, it's not going to have a big effect on the promise of climate legislation. But some people say, and I don't know, but some people say that one of the other things that's so important about controlling the Senate is that then you have the leadership, you control what's going to be getting onto the floor, but also you control every one of the committees in the majority. In terms of setting priorities and discussion, is that of great significance or, yes, or no? It, it is a great significance. Uh, and we saw that in the Trump administration where democratic control of the House in the last two years yeah. opened investigations and the impeachment vote of the president and so right. on that would not have happened had Democrats not uh, gotten control of the House in 2018. The other thing that, and all the things that you mentioned are actually important and can move the dial um, in measurable ways. Mm -hmm. What's perhaps even more important is that um, there are roughly 1,200 positions uh, in the executive branch, political positions that require Senate confirmation. And getting all these people confirmed and into their jobs is always a challenge. I mean, it was a challenge for Obama with starting out with 60 Republican senators, uh, but it's always a challenge. Mm -hmm. But controlling the agenda is very important because that's kind of controls the allocation of Senate debate time, which is a hugely valuable commodity. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's controlled by the majority leader. And mm -hmm. so uh, having 50 senators and having Chuck Schumer's majority leader is very different than having 49 and having Mitch McConnell's majority leader. And so it's going to be a lot easier to get hearings and get votes on Biden administration nominees if um, today's election in Georgia results in a democratically controlled Senate. Um, and it's not just the cabinet members who obviously will come first and are very important, but it's uh, all the sub-cabinet positions that require right. Senate confirmation. It's like 
probably a couple dozen positions at EPA, that are the positions that actually end up moving things along, the administrator on his or her own is somewhat limited in what Mm -hmm. um, he or she can do, but the assistant administrator for air and for water and for toxics, all these are tremendously important positions. And they require Senate confirmation. Right. Um, it's also important to get an early start. I mean, the clock is ticking. It becomes harder to do major regulatory initiatives in right before elections. So <laughs> there's kind of a year in which a lot can be accomplished. And it will be slowed down a lot if um, positions remain vacant. So let me – we're almost out of time. But I want to ask you one last thing. I'm interested in – you're telling me what what's your reaction to what I think has been a, a new development uh, in the last few years, particularly striking in 2019. And that's these youth movements of climate activism. We, we've seen it in Europe. We see it in the United States. Tremendously different from when, you know, certainly from when I was of that age, but even when my children were of that age. What's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism? Well, I think it's wonderful. Political participation is um, very important in our society. Um, And we have been um, lamenting for decades the fact that young people are apathetic and don't engage in the political process. And one thing, uh, these youth movements um, show that... um, that we may be at a turning point, that it may be the case that young people are coming to understand um, the impacts of what older generations um, have done and want to take uh, control of the political process and have an impact. And I think greater participation in um, in, in voting and in um, policy development and litigation or whatever form the participation takes is is a positive. Well, let's end with that because that's ending on an up note. It makes me feel good. Uh, Listen, Ricky, thank you very much for taking time to join us today. Rob, I really enjoyed it. It was a privilege to join you. I've admired uh, this podcast series for a long time, and I was very happy that you invited me to have this conversation. Well, thanks again to our guest today, Ricky Rivez, the Lawrence King Professor of Law at New York University, where he is Dean Emeritus. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.